The Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kaylee Akina is brought to you by the Roland Family Foundation and the Ho Moana Foundation, helping one person at a time. And now here's Kaylee Akina. Welcome to the Grassroot Institute. It's Monday, August 29th, and I'm Aaron Lee filling in for Dr. Kaylee Akina, president of the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii. And we just want to say aloha and welcome to you on Maui's only show dedicated to individual liberty, the free market, and limited accountable government. Today on the program, John Carroll is running for Senate. He recently sat down with Dr. Akina to discuss his platforms. Also, an agreement was reached in a lawsuit over the union contracts at the Maui Hospital. Andrew Walden of the Hawaiian Free Press has the latest. And the Maui County Council is moving to ban short-term rental platforms such as Airbnb. Jared Meyer, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, gives an opposing perspective. Plus, legislation is moving forward to begin regulating Uber January of 2017. Alan Yim has the story. In addition, we'll talk with author and economist Ken Schoolin and we'll listen to another adventure in the life of Jonathan Gullible. But first... The unions are asking for pay raises, and taxpayers may soon be on the hook. On June 30th, 2017, all 14 public employee union contracts will expire, which is prompting negotiations for higher pay. But there are transparency issues, as many lawmakers involved in the process are prevented from hearing the negotiations. Last week at the county council, Ricky Hokama said, Eventually, the council has to make the financial decision on whether to pay the contract or not. So, I'm still proposing that the council has a right and an opportunity to be at least briefed on what is being discussed on the table. Because we have issues. We always have to come up with the funds to pay the contracts. And yet we have no say of some of our concerns, whatever it may be. As decision makers and representatives of the people, we have a right to be able to be informed of information that will impact a final decision. Councilmember Mike White was particularly concerned that the public isn't being filled in. Not only do we not know what's going on in the process or what's being asked for at any stage of the game, whether it's prior to going into arbitration or, or afterwards, the public has no idea. And it's because, as was pointed out, we sign uh, confidentiality agreements with each of the unions prior to the start of negotiation. Well, I think the public deserves to know what the unions are asking for and what the, what the state and the, and the various counties are offering in the initial stages, especially. Because, um, you know, I'm assuming that what's going to happen this time, largely what happened during the last go-around, that, uh, that the raises that were provided are significantly higher than those given in the private sector. Corporation Council member Gary Marai explained the legalities behind the secrecy. It's not uh, an intentional or a willful um, unwillingness. It's more of uh, the fact that the negotiations and um, interest arbitration by their nature must be confidential. Um, the worst thing that can happen is uh, for information to be prematurely disclosed and uh, we are always concerned about the, the threat or the risk of um, being charged with an unfair labor practice by um, disclosing information outside, um, outside of the negotiations. But Councilmember Ellie Cochran pointed out that union contract negotiation is transparent in other states. You know, I have a, a dear friend, a, a mayor from uh, California that visits annually. So when I saw her the other day, I, I asked her this question because they go through this too, obviously. And she says they... They're, they're open. And that transparency may benefit Maui residents who pay for the union employee contracts with their tax dollars. Same thing, the skyrocketing costs of their fire and, and what have you. And I said, what happened in the end? She goes, they reasoned with us. They came down and came to a fair price with us. Accountability is crucial to a healthy government, and the Grassroot Institute will continue following this issue to help foster transparency. To stay updated, visit www.grassrootinstitute.org or sign up for our newsletter. 
I'm Aaron Leaf, researcher at the Grassroot Institute, and you're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kaylee Akina. John Carroll is returning to the political arena to run against Senator Schatz. Carroll spent 10 years in the state house and senate, and he was also a pilot and a military veteran. Dr. Akina sat down with him to talk about some of his platforms, and particularly the Jones Act. Please welcome to the program with me, John Carroll. <laughs> Senator John Carroll, good to see you. Uh, we still call you Senator from your state legislature Well, yes, you can call me uh, Kalilihuo Kalani. There you go. About Kalilihuo Kalani. Well, your Hawaiian <laughs> is just excellent. Uh, yeah. You know, tell me, what do you hope to accomplish this year, 2016? Well, now first, that you're throwing your hat yeah. back into the rink. First of all, I've been trying to get rid of the Jones Act, and for those who do not know what it is, it's a federal law that says that if a ship isn't built, manned, maintained, flagged, and man oh, excuse me, those those are owned That's right. by the. Um, by Americans or in America, it cannot operate in interstate commerce. The net effect of that is that if we have, say, major goods coming in from China, Korea, uh, things that we can use for farming, and they basically they can drop things off, but they cannot go from here and then do business in another state. Now, you've been an advocate for bringing some change to this federal law that goes back to the 1920s, and in <coughs> fact, yeah. you've got a case that has worked its way through federal court and yes and through the well up to the um, intermediate i mean the um the appellate court ninth yes. circuit court of ninth appeals. circuit yes and, and, and what have you been trying to accomplish with this suit well first of all the the interstate commerce provision is so ridiculous the whole if you read the case law on on this subject matter that is a commerce clause the purpose of the commerce clause in the constitution is to ensure that every state has equal access to interstate commerce with states, nations, and Indian tribes. And you're saying that the way the Jones Act works out in, in practice actually harms Hawaii's uh, economy under in terms of the interstate Not only harms it, it strangles its economy mm -hmm. because uh, Alaska, for instance, at least has pipelines, highway, and railroads, so they have some connection to the other 48 states, but now, we have nothing like that. Your so. argument is not just an economic argument, it happens to be a constitutional one, which, which makes you, your approach rather unique. Yes, absolutely. I, I th but they have, the, the, the uh, Intermediate Court of Appeals justices have all said uh, that may be, it could be uh, that, but the legislature, the U.S. Congress has uh -huh. said, oh, you know, if they want to do it, they can do it. So, you, you know, you have to do something different than what you're doing now. Well, so. let's step aside from the litigation and, and talk a bit about the Jones Act and what you would do if you are a United States Senator. But what, what can Senate, the Senate do? The first thing that I can do and which I intend to do is the very first day I'm in the Senate, I'm going to put in a provision to abolish those provisions that relate to interstate commerce. It's got no business there. That that law, the, the Jones Act law was primarily a um, a semen protection law, and they they iced this one into it, basically to help uh, the American merchant uh, merchant marine building uh, community. And they've gone on to just basically almost ruin it, as you have said, I believe, one of your speeches, I believe, I heard talking about that, or Ken Schooland, and that has got to go down the chute. Along with it, there's a whole bunch of subsidies that are being paid. Uh, to the ship owners and ship builders, sure. all coming out of the taxpayers, and we and a little Hawaii here is the most drastically hurt by this. In a sense, you, you recognize that litigation can only go so far, so you're seeking a political position. Exactly, and not, and not and, only not only seeking that, but what what really irritates me is that this that the Ninth Circuit judges would come out and say that this is not something for litigation that what one of the justices or judges said that under certain circumstances that san diego gun rights law which is a standing issue could that could be eliminated then we could go forward because they clearly recognize the danger i mean the harm to hawaii but they're unwilling to do anything about it until that standing issue is out of the way. So. You know, in some ways, this issue is a metaphor for for your political race. There, there is some level t at which this is a David and Goliath attempt to, <laughs> to unseat a Democrat senator from the state of Hawaii. 
In fact, all of our congressional representatives are in favor of the Jones Act as it is. They, they defend it to the hilt. Their campaign sponsors, the unions, uh, pour big money into their campaigns Absolutely. When, in, in order to maintain the Jones Act. Yeah, so, when, when Ed Case, who's a Democrat obviously, mm -hmm. put in an anti-Jones Act resolution, Colleen Hanabusa took his, his seat away from from him and based, I'm sure, upon Dan Inouye and, and Spark, or, you know, right. telling them to get so, it. So here's my political question. Given all of the opposition to Jones Act reform or Jones Act repeal, how do you stand a chance, John, to, to, to mount a, a victorious campaign in this state? Well, <coughs> first of all, <coughs> what I've found <coughs> is that if you can let people know, and I talked to the United Visayan Community Association, which is uh, in Waipahu, sure. probably 1,000% Democrats, when they understood what the impact of the Jones Act is on their lives and their, in, their pocketbooks and their future, they had four pages, furnished, by the way, by Fermont Dial, who is a, a Democrat, but was soon to become a Republican, along with you when you make your governor's race. And uh, so they, they basically really understand it, and I think when that message is out, they will vote for me regardless of my age and looks and all of that. So, so what you're basically saying is that putting litigation aside, putting politics aside, putting union, non-union issues aside, that the people themselves feel that there's some need of change. That, Absolutely. And, and yeah. what is it that makes people feel we need to change something that impacts the economy like the Jones Act? Well, being able to get the message out to the people here, and that brings up another major issue, is that Brother Schatz, Senator Schatz, has refused to debate with the five people running against him. And there's a young man named McConney Christensen. Right, we had him uh, as a guest here. Oh, he, you did? He's okay. A, he's well, a Democrat he, who he, ran in the primary against Right, an Senator academy Schatz. graduate. He's coming on board our campaign now to force shots into debate. I think the people of this state have a right to know the bulletin, I'm sorry, the advertiser is not getting the word out as to who's who or why they're running or anything else, and I think that's a blot on them. What do you say when the media or your political opponent says, well, th there's not much mandate for a de debate because we, John Carroll doesn't carry the number of votes that, that really registers uh, uh, on the, the scale to, to constitute a real debate between two competing viewpoints. In other words, that we don't really even have a second party of any sizable yeah. well, number here. That's what, what the English what said response? to the Americans, and all I'm saying is I'm George Washington on this one, so we will move forward and win. I, I really believe that the word is getting out right now uh, as to what this impact has been. And I believe that the more, the, the people that are already working for me, and I have this, Dana Kalakau, and she is really doing a great job as a campaign chairman, and she's getting the word out to the Bernie Sanders people and a lot of different people that normally wouldn't be looking at me at all. And I think the reasonableness, the potential for the future for them, all can be clearly stated and clearly shown in what we're putting out. And when that happens, we will get elected. That's how I see it. Well, you're clearly running as a reformer. You're running against the powers that be, which, which, although you are a Republican, these are themes that resonate very strongly with many Democrats and non-Republicans across the nation. Well, they should, yes. And, and let me say this, too, because I know uh, I shouldn't say anything bad about Republicans, but we had a, a platform plank in the Republican Party that said that the Jones Act should be eliminated and Mrs. Lingle actually got that plant removed, and then when she ran for U.S. Senate, she was in favor of the Jones Act. That's the reason I backed well, up Maisie Hirono. One of the things you touch upon here is that the Jones Act is not purely a political issue uh, around which people line up on, on only one side of the, the party line. In fact, you mentioned uh, McConnie Christensen, who was running to oppose Senator Schatz in his own party. Exactly. He sat exactly where you were and, uh, and espoused this very same position to, and perspective on the Jones Act that you do. It's called truth and common sense, and that's what we bring to the table. Because, uh, for instance, we had, when I was in the House of Representatives, there was, I used to be a diver and flying and every place I'd go, including 250 miles out to sea, you see bagasse. So my very first year in the state house, I put in a bill that forced the plantations to silt 
the gas on shore so we had clean water. And now even, even if I die today, at least I can look down as we fly and you see clean water. And that, but from that day on, I never got a penny out of Alexander Ball and Castle & Cook or, or the plantation owners. But I, I just go basically on what I think is right and that's why I'm doing this. And if somebody else was here to do this, I, I probably wouldn't be here, but I just did not see any leadership coming forward. What has to happen in order to restore Hawaii's greatness? Well, <laughs> am I supposed to say, get me elected? <laughs> <laughs> there was a softball I was handing you over here. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if what I'm, what I'm saying should to get done will get done, that will restore it. And I have my kids paying attention to this race, and I'm looking at, well, fellows like you, and I think you're key to the future here. Just for your audience to know, I heard this young man uh, speaking at a some breakfast or something, and I thought, my goodness, where has he been hiding? But he's got you're too the, kind. Huh? You're too kind, John. Well, I'm not too kind, to, uh, but your position on, well, number one on on the Jones Act now, and then plus on the Hawaiian Homes on education, every every single thing that I'm concerned about, you were talking about him at a time nobody knew who you were. Well, thank you. And uh, well, thank you. talking about time, it's time for us to move on and <laughs> let the folks out there ponder the, uh, the reasons you've given to become our next United States Senator. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks John. so much, John. So glad to have you. Could I say today. one more thing? One last thing, please. Uh, very few people have 84 years to plan to run for office. So There you go. <laughs> and keep on running long after that. I have no fear. <laughs> My guest today, Senator John Carroll. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelly Akina. In every news piece, there is a story behind the story. Andrew Walden has been finding the truth behind the news. We're going to talk with him today. He's the publisher of Hawaii Free Press. Andrew, there are some days when we can shout out loud that progress is being made in the state of Hawaii. Uh, we've been covering the transition of Maui's labor at the hospitals from government sector to private sector. The unions have fought it tooth and nail, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, the current court case, uh, injunction against the Maui hospital uh, merger, I mean uh, privatization, has been dissolved now. Tell us about that. Yes, uh, Ninth Circuit uh, on... Uh Friday, August uh, 18th, uh, or I'm sorry, 19th, uh, dissolved the UPW's uh, or uh, set aside the UPW's injunction. And what was their basic complaint? Mm, well, the uh, UPW and the governor agreed to a settlement. They took the settlement to the court, and the court agreed to dissolve the injunction. Basically, the Ninth Circuit had acted as lobbyists for the UPW uh, to force the state to write a settlement. And so the settlement holds that uh, uh, there will be no privatization prior to Sunday, uh, November the 6th. Why that date is important, I do not know. I don't think I've heard that in any of the news conferences, the rationale for that date. It is a mystery. Yes, it is. Uh, and also that uh, UPW employees will be leased to Kaiser by the state of Hawaii uh, from the first date of Kaiser's operation of the hospital until the end of the UPW contract, which is June the 30th. Um, and how much this is going to cost is kind of an open question. Uh, there, nobody really has a hard number they can put on it. And it does call for further discussions. Of course, this all is in the context of uh, Senate Bill 2077, which was an unfunded uh, uh, bill obligating the state's ERS to make a cash settlement. And uh, the ERS has since sued the state uh, because uh, uh, 2077 would uh, uh, throw the whole retirement system into chaos because uh, it's an illegal um, for a, a nonprofit uh, retirement system to make cash settlements sure. of that nature, and they would lose their nonprofit status with the IRS, which would drive up their costs, which would reduce everybody's uh, retirement benefits. Well, you know, anyone in the public uh, ha has every right to feel confused because it has been a confusing 
process. Something which could have been very easily done has been fought tooth and nail by the unions all the way. And, and this is just part of the process. But the good news is this. The hospitals are going to stay open. They're going to keep serving the needs of the people. And labor is going to be something that is managed reasonably at a better cost. And the taxpayers are not going to be bilked out of more and more subsidies in order to keep these failing hospitals going. So that's good. Not, I, not everything 100% uh, what we might like to have seen, but we're moving forward. Now, Andrew, in, in many ways, this positions the state to move ahead with privatization of, of other hospitals. Yes, and um, earlier, uh, Tuesday, August 16th, Governor Ige said that the Maui Hospital Plan is a blueprint for privatization of the hospitals in Hilo and Kona. And so whatever details are worked out on Maui uh, will be um, replicated on the Big Island. Uh, and that uh, could be very positive news uh, for the Big Island as well. Uh, Hilo has been working with Adventist Medical, which uh, operates the Castle Medical Center in Kailua on Oahu. Uh, Kona has been seeking a partner, but doesn't have one yet. Well, it looks like uh, the folks over on the Big Island are able to move out of the watch-and-see mode that they've had to be in for quite a while, because it, the state is coming up with a process that will be satisfactory to the players involved, including the unions. Now, here on Maui, we've got some good news. People have been waiting for a long time in Lahaina to hear this news about the opening of a new hospital. Yes, they've been waiting 64 years on Maui for a second hospital. Maui Memorial was the last hospital opened, and that was opened in 1952. Uh, and since 1952, a lot has changed on Maui, but one thing that hasn't changed is the number of hospitals until now. And the population has changed during that time, uh, making the health care resources even more scarce. Right. And so uh, the West Maui Hospital and Medical Center has uh, had its groundbreaking. They will be building a 25-bed hospital with a 24-hour emergency room, uh, nursing facility, and assisted living and future plans for drug and alcohol rehab. Um, and uh, after years and years and years of bureaucratic nonsense, they're finally uh, under construction. Well, this is a good day in Hawaii. We are making progress, and thanks for keeping us uh, apprised of what's taking place in the world of hospitals in Hawaii. Aloha. That was Andrew Walden, publisher of Hawaii Free Press, 24-7 at hawaiifreepress.com. You're listening to the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Keli'i Akina. Tourists on Maui are enjoying paradise for a lower price thanks to home sharing platforms like Airbnb and HomeAway. These social media apps allow users to share their homes with passing tourists staying in the islands. But recently, the county council has moved to end Airbnb and other home-sharing platforms in Hawaii. The measure would restrict the right for Maui residents to advertise their home and slap Maui residents with stiff fines and penalties. Councilman Ricky Hokama complained about Airbnb. I've had it. I think we gave them enough time. I'm ready to go straight to enforcement. So uh, I have my issues with giving another six months because the YC they see the county as a dog barking loud but has no teeth. Well, I'm ready to bite with teeth. So that's my position, Chairman. Thank you. However, Jared Meyer, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, said about Airbnb. Welcome, Jared. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks. Um, can you explain to me and uh, some of our listeners about what is Airbnb? So Airbnb is an online platform that allows people with extra space in their house to find someone who they can rent it out to either on a short-term or long-term basis. And though the platform itself is pretty new, the idea behind it isn't vacation rentals. That's been a business for a long time. And as long as there's been homes, there have been people who have had extra space 
and who would love to find someone who's looking to stay in it and pay them money to do so. But now it's just easier than ever before, and that's why the service is growing so rapidly. So I can just pull up my phone, uh, download an app, push a button, and now I'm hosting a bed and breakfast out of my house. <laughs> well, if you wanted to stay somewhere, it's about that easy. But if you want to be a host, there's certain qualifications you have to meet. Uh-huh. And Airbnb does try to put some standards in place to make sure that you can have a good experience when you go to stay somewhere. But the main part, how you know you're probably going to have a good experience on Airbnb, and from my own experience, I can say I've always had a great time, is that it relies on dual feedback systems where both the person who's renting out their space and the one who's staying there rate each other. So if you had a bad experience, you can let everyone else who wants to know uh, uh, rent on Airbnb know about it. And this acts as a strong incentive to make sure that people are on their best behavior. People want uh, five stars or whatever, <laughs> ten stars. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they want a, They want that five-star rating because when I go to book somewhere on Airbnb, I can see a host rating, and there's been plenty of times where I see that they have a low rating or not that many ratings that they've received, and I decide to go look somewhere else and maybe pay a little bit more so that I know I'm going to have a good experience. Well, that sounds great, but um, here on Maui, where we deal with uh, a lack of housing supply and which has resulted in very high rents and rents have been going up and up and up every year and when we hear about airbnb it sounds like tourists then are going to use spaces that locals could be using is this to blame is airbnb to blame for high rents it's something you hear pretty often, especially from politicians, but I argue that it's actually the politicians who are to blame for these housing shortages, not Airbnb, because they've put in place such restrictions on new construction or rentals or even not owning a home that it's become really impossible in a lot of cities for working class families to be able to afford rent. If anything, Airbnb gives families another chance to make some money so that they can meet their mortgage or rent payments because now they can use their house or their apartment to rent out to tourists who are coming in. So politicians, we saw this in California, they try to blame Airbnb for high rents when rents have been skyrocketing for long, uh, long before Airbnb started to gain popularity, but they're looking for anyone to blame besides themselves. And when they can pin it on a bunch of young uh, entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, they're more than happy to do so. And I assume that hotels, uh, also are opponents of Airbnb because like, obviously it's competition. Yeah, you see this uh, as well. It's not just politicians who are railing against Airbnb. It's also hotels. Even though I would argue in general, people who are staying at Airbnb, they're not the same people who are going to go stay at a five-star Marriott or uh, a, a high-end Hilton on Maui. Instead, it might be people who maybe couldn't travel before because a vacation out to Hawaii wasn't an option for them. But now when they can find a place to stay, and I was just looking, you can find a good place for $100 a night. All of a sudden, a Hawaii vacation looks like a possibility. And so do you think um, that the Airbnb might also help locals afford housing on Maui? Yeah, definitely. Right now, you haven't seen much of an effect because it's still a relatively new service. Less than 10% of accommodations on Hawaii are non-hotel, where there are vacation rentals, and Airbnb is just a small percent of that. So it hasn't really grown to where it's a threat to hotels yet or a reliable income source for a lot of families. But what's so promising about many of these companies in the sharing economy is that as they continue to grow, it not only increases travel options for people, but it also acts as another stream of income for people who want to really be their own boss and decide when they want to rent out their house. Before, if a room was just sitting there unused, now you can make money from that. So you're turning your property or your rental into a way to help make the payments that you need to meet to keep that place. And you're helping the economy, and sometimes there's a lot of pain in the neck things that go with um, having a a yearly renter, and you might have um, some open space in your house occasionally that you could use. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it, it's a lot different. If you're looking to rent out for a year, that's an entirely different clientele than people who are using Airbnb. This is short term where it can work around your schedule and you can decide which days you're available to act as a host. 
And I've talked with lots of Airbnb hosts. And while some of them used the platform for a while, then decided they didn't really want to anymore, at least there's this flexibility that you can enter the platform, make some money, and if it doesn't work for you, easily leave. And if it does work for you, as it does for millions of homeowners or renters throughout the world, that's a way that you can turn it into an additional revenue stream. Going back, doesn't Airbnb at the end of the day cause our rent to raise? I don't think it does. You are increasing the supply, but right now it's been on such a small scale, you wouldn't really notice any effect. But I would say in the long term, if we're moving more towards people using Airbnb, it could have some effect on rent because you could make more money from it. But what I would argue is rather than taking this promising innovation and really cutting it out before it can even grow, what we need to do is look at the laws that are outdated, passed decades ago, that are making it more difficult for families to meet their rent or mortgage payments. That's the real culprit, not Airbnb when it comes to high housing prices. So when it comes to housing shortages on Maui, we should look at uh, the real reasons, which might stem from uh, a look at government then. Exactly. And whenever you hear someone going off against Airbnb, first of all, check to see if they're associated with the hotel industry and then check to see which restrictionist housing policy they've pushed for if they're politicians. Then you can (laughs) see where the blame should lie. Good tip. Thanks so much, Jared. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Jared Meyer is a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Hi, I'm Ken Schooland. I'm an economist teaching uh, at Hawaii Pacific University. I've been living here since 1979, and I'm a strong supporter of Grassroot Institute of Hawaii. I support the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii because they're the only ones that have a really independent eye as a watchdog against the legislature on public policy, uh, keeping a careful watch on the public officials, uh, looking out for the consumer, the taxpayer, uh, the business person in, in Hawaii, Uh, to see to it that um, there's a respect for individual rights in the islands. For more information, visit www.grassrootinstitute.org. Well, in case you didn't get the memo, Hawaii is part of the United States of America. And we travel freely from state to state. We share our benefits and our national identity. So in order to work in a state, Should you have to have a driver's license in that state? What if you have one from another state? Well, in the case of Uber or Lyft, that's the issue we're looking at. On Oahu, the county council recently passed a bill that would require all ride-sharing drivers to be licensed in the state. Well, on the surface, uh, that may sound good, makes us... uh, unified in one way, but underneath the surface. What does that mean for the many workers who don't have an in-state driver's license or who would have to wait months to get one? Joe Kent brings us the story. I'm here with Alan Yim. He was at the Honolulu County Council yesterday, and he's also an Uber driver. Welcome, Alan. Uh, Hi. Good to be here. So what did the situation look like at the Honolulu Council yesterday? Yesterday, there was a bunch of Uber and Lyft drivers. We, we had about maybe 50 or more over at uh, City Hall, and uh, we were there to kind of just protest those regulations that the city council was going to pass. What were the uh, regulations? What, what does Bill 36 do? It uh, establishes like this new class of sort of job licensing on rideshare companies like Uber and Lyft. And it makes it so that we have to go through the state for added uh, certifications, which which really is just kind of like really redundant on what we need to do. And then it adds even more layers on, uh, it adds sort of like this implication that we're taxi drivers when we aren't taxi drivers at all. And uh, the service we provide isn't isn't at the same level. And it also adds even more into where it's asking us to be almost sort of qualified as a like professional tour guide. Oh, like a professional tour company or tour guide. Yeah. In what way? The bill was pretty vague in in what it wanted us to do for this certification uh, in sort of like a tourist aspect or a tour guide aspect where it was asking that we needed to have knowledge of like the streets and of monuments and it's kind of in what way does this knowledge like what what do they mean by what kind of knowledge do they mean well do if we have a gps is that good enough or do we need to pass sort of a written test and there's or an understanding of history on 
the streets and monuments driving by. A part of the bill was also to require Uber and Lyft drivers or any ride-sharing company um, to have a Hawaii driver's license so um, out-of-state drivers couldn't drive for Uber or Lyft. Uh, is that right? Uh, yeah, that's that's right. And uh, that, w- that was an issue we brought up. Uh, one of one of the testifiers for Uber uh, brought this up is that he's a he's a active duty military, and he doesn't have a Hawaii driver's license. And so, if this regulation does indeed take effect, he wouldn't be able to drive in Hawaii for Uber. What about the argument that um, if people drive in Hawaii? they should have a Hawaii driver's license. I don't think it really counts because, I mean, we have tourists from all over the world that come here and they have, they rent cars and they drive all over the island all day, all year. And I don't see Hawaii passing legislation to demand that everyone get a Hawaii driver's license for that. And I think they, that would be entirely unrealistic to expect that for, from just the, just being able for the state to handle that at all either. What were some of the um, arguments that you saw at the council yesterday bo- on both sides? Um, from from the ride-sharing perspective, we were talking about how how uh, we just serve communities within Hawaii. Uh, people are asking us to help pick them up. I mean, it's not like we're running around uh, stealing fares from taxi cabs or anything. Uh, through the app, people request a ride, and we just serve that need. Uh, and it's doing wonderful things when, when it's getting people off the road. That maybe after a night of drinking, instead of taking that dangerous choice of driving home drunk, they'd rather catch a ride with Uber just because it's much more convenient. And then there's also just how do we, how do uh, people get by in Hawaii? We know the high cost of living demands that people have more than one job a lot of the time. And Uber is like one of the best roles to fill that where you can work your own hours and it's very easy. And it's not, it's not like this full-time profession where we're trying to knock people out of the industry. It's people just trying to get by and survive using the things that they already have with their own car. And from the taxi perspective there, I can understand that a lot of the arguments being made were, well, you know, we're losing all of customers to these people, and uh, we're not sure why it is. We have special deals. They were talking about the certification that they go through and how they have special uh, deals with hotels uh, for picking up passengers from the hotels or certain bars. And they're just worried that they're going to go out of business. And another thing was a lot of misrepresentation about if we pay taxes or not from the taxi side. Oh, wait. So you're saying that the uh, um, arguments on the other side say that uh, Uber and Lyft drivers don't don't pay taxes. Is that right? Yes, that's what they say. But it's not true at all. Uh, From the Uber's perspective, I know Uber tells all the drivers that we should get our Hawaii general excise tax license. And that's something that we have to pay. And when it comes time to do tax season, we still have to pay taxes on the revenue that's generated through doing Uber, and they send us the tax form so that we can file it. Okay, but what about the what about the argument that this just makes everything uh, fair and square and even, and now everybody um, has the same uh, abilities and rights? I mean, if you look at the perspective of fair, as in, well, if I can't have if I can't have one thing, then no one else can have something. I mean, that might be fair, but realistically, I think the taxi companies are looking about it wrong, where instead of asking asking us to come under rules for taxis, I think taxis should be looking towards uh, trying to get rid of the regulations that are holding them back from adapting and becoming much more like rideshare companies instead. I see. Um, well, well um, there was some talk about Uber perhaps pulling out of Hawaii. Do you think that will um, that will be true? Or you, do you think they'll leave? Uh, it's definitely a possibility. We've seen it before where in Austin, Texas we've had a similar situation where their version of the city council passed 
uh, ordinances against rideshare companies, and it ended up that Uber and Lyft left that city altogether, and the passengers never went back to the taxi companies or the numbers that they thought they would. And in fact, everyone went to more underground, underground versions of Uber and uh, Lyft through Facebook instead. Uh, so it became a little more sketchy and dangerous. Yeah, it actually yes, it, it actually kind of made it less safe because it wasn't in the open anymore. And uh, I mean, if that's what that's what the city council claims is, they're worried about the safety of the riders. And right now, uh, there's actually great feedback between riders and drivers and between the rideshare companies themselves on the quality of service. And, you know, if if the riders in Uber and Lyft really didn't feel safe with our drivers, they just didn't, all they would have to do is not use our service. Okay, well, uh, it looks like the Bill 36 did pass yesterday, which means now it's on the mayor's desk to sign. Um, but it, the new rules kick in in uh, January um, unless things change. So um, anyways, thanks so much for joining us and giving your perspective, Alan. Well, thank you for having me. Alan Yim is a driver for Uber in Honolulu. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with the Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kelly Akina. I'm Robin Stuber. I'm a local girl born and raised in Hawaii, and I support the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii. I joined the Grassroot Institute from its first inception. I feel very strongly about my grassroot membership because I have a son who will be going off to college soon, and I'm very concerned for the future that he'll be facing. Government seems to uh, impose a lot more regulation today. I don't know how that's going to affect the business climate when he's ready to graduate and look for a job. Um, Even for him as an individual, what kind of new uh, regulations and taxes and cost of living will he have to face? Will he be able to move back to Hawaii and stay with his family? I'd like to for my son to to have a, a bright future. And I think Grassroot Institute does a very good job with um, looking to continue to promote the kinds of values that I really believe in. For more information, visit www.grassrootinstitute.org. One of the most important efforts that we must stand behind is the education of our young people and indeed all people in free market economics. A free society needs to have an educated society. And one of the best ways to help bring about that education is to expose young people to a wonderful work by grassroots scholar Kenneth Scullund called The Adventures of Jonathan Gullible, A Free Market Odyssey. Each week we've been playing a portion of this and then Ken and I talk about it. Listen now. As you may recall, we last left Jonathan Gullible on a remote Pacific island after his boat was blown far off course by a terrific storm. Eager to learn more about the island, he wandered into a nearby town where he found two tall iron bar fences, one on either side of the road. Walking up to a uniformed guard on the road between the two fences, Jonathan asked, Pardon me, sir, but can you tell me what these two iron fences are for? The iron bars on the right side of the road are for our zoo. What is a zoo? Well, a zoo is a place to keep many animals from all over the world. These fences are used to keep them in one place so that people can study them and so that these strange animals won't go about harming society. It must cost you a fortune to find these animals, bring them here, and provide for them. Oh, I don't pay for the zoo out of my own pocket. Everyone pays a zoo tax. Everyone? Well, there are some people who have no interest in the zoo, and there are some who feel that the animals should only be studied in their natural habitat. When these people refuse to pay their zoo taxes, they are removed from their natural habitat and placed behind those iron bars across the street. Such people can then be studied, and they are prevented from harming society. If you don't want to do people harm, how do you know which side of the fence is better? So ends another bizarre episode in the life of Jonathan Gullible, JonathanGullible.com. Ken, that was just a delightful story, but uh, like so many of your stories, uh, my laughter turns to tears when I start to realize that we're talking about home. (laughs) Yes, that's right. It first came to me when all the controversy surrounded the zoo down here at Honolulu uh, in Waikiki. And I was always puzzled. Why would people come here to the middle of the Pacific to 
Waikiki to see giraffes and and elephants and so on. And they, when they had several some of the animals dying because of bad care, I uh, questioned the idea of paying the zoo tax. But then it occurs to me that if you don't pay the zoo tax, uh, you can be put in the people zoo uh, because you're not not paying for what they've determined you have to. Well, you know, that is a poignant way of helping us to realize that we're actually being coerced. We, we don't think a lot about it, but the punishment of being put into a people zoo, as uh, exaggerated as that really is, uh, hits the nail on the head that uh, every day we are paying for things that somebody else, somewhere else, decided should be fo- forced upon us. And uh, that's the nature of tax, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, about half of the expenses, I understand, about half of the expense of the zoo is paid for by the gate fee, by the people who use it. But the other half is paid for by people all around the islands, whether they're interested in it or not, or even whether they believe in it. I mean, there's a perfectly strong argument that uh, animals should be studied in their natural habitat. People don't need to come to Waikiki to look at elephants and giraffes. They can, uh, they can look at it on television. They can go travel to those places. Um, but to compel them to pay for it, when it's really uh, uh, an attraction for tourists or coming to Waikiki and uh, to a great extent, uh, why not let people pay for it at the gate if they really like it? Well, you know, Ken, let me play the devil's advocate for a moment. Somewhere down the line, people will say that the zoo exists to serve the common good, the greater good of, of everyone, and that we've all had a say. Because this is a democracy, and we've elected our officials, and they have represented us, and they have made the decision to use resources in this way. And so uh, it's just part of being in the society, Uh, and it's a good thing. And so although I may not personally agree with it, because we are a democracy, and most of us have supported the people who uh, are in office and decided that our money should be used this way, we just go along with it. Our country was established uh, on the principle of freedom and individual rights, and that democracy was to be a limited democracy, a government that was limited to uh, the protection of people's rights uh, to their own life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If we were ruled by absolute majorities, uh, what uh, uh, John Stuart Mill called the tyranny of the majority, then why not let them decide what we're going to eat? Why not let them decide what time we should all go to bed, what time, how many children we should be allowed to have? In other words, if, if decisions are not to be made by ourselves in a free society, then why not allow government uh, by majority rule to determine everything? And of course, we don't accept that uh, because that's the, uh, uh, that would be an absolute tyranny, whether, whether it's by uh, majority vote or, in fact, it's a very corrupted system. We know that majorities don't really have the influence even in democracy. It's uh, often corrupted by campaign contributions and special uh, interest insider cronyism and all that sort of thing. So uh, even if it was a, uh, you know, a pure democracy, it would still be questionable to let it make us all make all the decision, decisions for us. Let's consider the alternative for a moment, that government does not force us to pay for things that we don't want and instead leaves to the market whether or not we have a zoo and so forth. Some might argue that many good things that society should have, whether it be ambulance services or trash picking up and so forth, wouldn't uh, happen because uh, you need the force of government in order to bring these things about. What are your thoughts about that? I think along the lines of Henry David Thoreau. Um, actually, this idea at the very end of the story, on which side of the fence is it, uh, is it better to be on if you really are in favor of freedom? Uh, he opposed the things that were supported by government in his day, uh, the war in Mexico and slavery. And he opposed those things. He says, they have no business forcing me to pay for that sort of thing. And so being, by refusing to pay his tax, he spent uh, time in jail uh, until he got uh, bailed out. Um, But I think that uh, we have to recognize that the Founding Fathers insisted that government was a limited, um, had a a limited role in our lives, that we have rights to our own life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. In your book, The Adventures of Jonathan Gullible, A Free Market Odyssey, Jonathan has a creed, and or a credo, really. It's a statement about liberty in which uh, he announces that your body is your own, your life is your own, and uh, from that deduces that your labor, and as a result, your money is your own. So you see taxation for all of these things that we don't want 
to be a form of violating our personal liberty? Uh, sure, because, um, well, as you mentioned, these are all extensions of the same thing. You own your life, your liberty, and the product of your life and liberty, which is your property. Um, if the if the government takes away your property, they've taken essentially away uh, that portion of your past, the, the life and liberty that it took to produce that kind of uh, wealth in order for them to take it. Um, and so, yes, it's a, it's a part of your life, and uh, it's a... Um, you know, as important as your, I mean, the, I think of life as your future, uh, your liberty as your present, and your property as the product of your past life and liberty, what you've produced in the past. And if they take it away from you, you have to do it again in the future to replace it. And uh, you say that we, we seldom see uh, the violence acted, uh, enacted by the government against us, but that's because we become so obedient to um, the threats of government. You know, if you resist, what will they do? They'll come up, uh, up to you with uh, with guns. And if you resist that, well, then the severe ultimate penalty. Well, maybe there should be a zoo for the people who don't want to pay the zoo tax so that we can actually see what government does to us when we live under coercion and have our liberties truncated. It would be interesting to actually look at the zoos and find out how many people are there for actually violating the rights of others and how many people are there because their rights have been violated. And I would say that in the case of victimless crimes, um, such as the possession of marijuana and so on, it is they that are the victims of uh, society that has imposed its will on them and tried to control their life, liberty, and property in ways that belong to themselves. Ken, thank you for this insight into what really is happening to our liberties through the taxation system. Well, thank you, Kali. Kenneth Scoland, professor at Hawaii Pacific University and the author of The Adventures of Jonathan Gullible, A Free Market Odyssey. Well, Dr. Akina, another great show. It sure has been, and it's been great because our listeners are Noka Oi here in the county of Maui. Signing off today, this is Kili Akina with Joe Kent for Grassroot Institute. Aloha. The Grassroot Institute with Dr. Kili Akina is brought to you by the Ho'omoana Foundation, helping one person at a time. If you'd like to get a copy of our show, just visit www.grassrootinstitute.org. We'll see you next Monday at 7 a.m. right here on KAOI. Thanks for listening.